My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you're holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and no man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. This is the first 11 verses of Psalm 22, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, April the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today, uh, and a happy birthday to my brother David, who uh, he's my youngest brother, and today is his birthday. So that's always a happy time because I love my brother David. And I love my brother Brian, too, by the way. I didn't mean to say it that way. Um, so <laughs> we're going to continue our look today at the um, prophecy of Jeremiah. Today we're going to skip forward from, from chapter 26 where we were yesterday, where they were trying Jeremiah, to now we're, we're in Jeremiah 29, uh, which is, again, one of the most famous uh, passages that known to most Christians, at least one verse is. In fact, I've probably... Somewhere here in my office, I probably have, yep, it's right next to me, um, a, a part, a portion of this uh, on the wall, actually. So it, it's, it, it's about the prospering, God's, God's plans for us in the future. So it's got Jeremiah 29, 1, and then skipping forward to verses 4 through 13. In the gospel, we're in John 11, 1 to 27, and in the epistle, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 11, verses 13 to 24. So, uh, we're looking at this passage. Like I said, it's after Jeremiah was tried and the people turned on the, um, the religious leaders and told the civic, civil authorities, no, 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 he doesn't deserve to die. So now here he speaks to the exile community. And, you know, if anybody can understand this a little bit, maybe it is us. Maybe it's our generation. Maybe we can understand some things. When I say our generation, I mean, I mean everybody who's alive today and is capable of understanding what's going on in the world. Because there, there's this belief in these situations with exiles or whatever. There's a belief that's going to exist that this is going to change soon. It's like the stages of grief, right? I mean, there's bargaining and uh, sort of, okay, uh, denial and all that kind of stuff. And so there's always a belief that it's going to change soon. If you want to see something about perseverance in that, then read Viktor Frankl, um, one of the greatest um, writers of all time who understood this, this mentality from the perspective of one who had survived a Nazi concentra- concentration camp. There's, there's always a belief this is going to end soon, this is going to end soon, this is going to end soon. And so then you, you've got to make um, some way of making peace with the situation that it's not going to end soon. And so I think we've experienced some of that with COVID. I think we, uh, I can remember when I was working for Amazon in the beginning days, uh, getting phone calls um, that people believed that everything was going to change by Easter. So only a couple of months into the whole thing, everybody believed it was going to change by Easter. Well, here we are two years later, and, and it's changed in a lot of ways. It for for the better, but have we gone back really to normal life? So that that there he's speaking to this exile community who are in Babylon. 
These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah has not gone to Babylon, not yet, because there's still some who remain. And so he has to be there to prophesy to them. He's already said, that's where you ought be is in Babylon, not here, and not flee into Egypt. Nope, you should be in Babylon, and and so you, you should get there. So now he's writing to those who are in Babylon, those who Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon. This wasn't a voluntary thing. So, the, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I'm sent into exile, who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is my doing. I know what I'm doing. I had a plan for this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, settle in, live your life. You're going to be there a long time. Don't don't act like sojourners. Act like you live there because you're going to for a long time, for 70 years. So it's interesting, though, that the choices that, that God makes here in the way that he communicates this, it says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. So it's interesting that, that in Deuteronomy, there's an exemption or a set of exemptions for people not to serve in the army in a discretionary war. In other words, if they've decided to go to war against somebody, it's not a defensive war, it's an offensive war. So if if you have, then officials have to address the troops and say, is there anyone who has built a new house but hasn't dedicated it? Or planted a vineyard but never harvested it? Or spoken for a woman in marriage and has not married her, let him go back home, lest he die in battle and another do it. So what it what those three things, building houses, planting vineyards, but here he says gardens, and then getting married, those three things exempt you from military service for a season of time. The longest season of time is actually when you plant a vineyard, uh, that, that that gives you an exemption longer than the others. Uh, the, the, the thought is you need to enjoy, you, you've worked for something, and now you need the enjoyment of that thing for some season of time before there's any other obligation on your life. And certainly, if you're going to get married, be fruitful and multiply, that's got to happen. So that all those things are exemptions, and, and what he's saying is, is that, that settle in, do those things. This isn't going to be quick. Do the things that would exempt you from military service for some season of time, because that is, is what this looks like. You're in a military occupation. Uh, you're, you're occupied militarily, and so you're in exile. Now do these things because nobody's going to require anything else of you in the short term. But then he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. There would certainly be a natural inclination not to play, pray for Babylon and the Babylonians, because they've taken them into exile and forced them to be there. And so there would be a natural resentment. But, but Jeremiah says, Nope, nope. God said you're going to be there long enough if you'll pray for them then things will go well with you as it goes well with them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream. So this is among the exiles. He's speaking about you got prophets and diviners and whatever who they're dreaming dreams and they're sharing with you. For it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. So what they must have been prophesying was just, just hunker down for a little bit and then we'll go back. God's going to reverse this thing quickly. Jeremiah is saying, no, he's not. 
settle in. That tells you the lie that they've been prophesying. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then here's the part that most Christians know. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. In other words, not a divided heart. And, and that's what they've had during all this time is they've had a divided heart. They wanted gain. They wanted to, to have more of everything. And that's the reason they didn't keep the Sabbaths in the Jubilee year. They never let the land lie fallow like they were supposed to do because they wanted more and more and more. And so they prayed to him, but they also, well, okay, we're going to hedge our bets, and we're going to also make supplication to Baal just in case he's the one who provides the increase. So we're hedging our bets all over the place here. Nope, you got to return with your whole heart. you got to reject all that other stuff. you got to reject the gods, the false gods that you've gone after, which are Babylonian gods. And then you've got to come to me with your whole heart undivided, not just from worshiping other gods, but... You've also made a God of prosperity, and that's what you have to repent of as well. In the gospel, you you know, the good news about this particular lesson, I mean, I hate it for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but but the good news that we're reading, getting ready to read today, the beginning, the first half of the story of the death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it it means we're getting really close to Easter. (laughs) And that's just next Sunday. So we we read this because we're reaching the fullness of, of the revelation of Jesus um, in his works. And so what we get here is now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, John doesn't tell us that story of, of anointing his feet with her hair. That's told in the other Gospels, in the Synoptics. It's not told in John. So John's referring to those that are already there in order to explain who this Mary is. <laughs> so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So we know that, that Jesus loved Lazarus, and that's their appeal. Hey, love. Love should compel you to come and do something. again. They're not asking him what, what to do. They're telling him he's ill because they believe in him. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, where else has Jesus said something very similar to that? Okay, so where did he say it? He said it just a couple of days ago in our reading over in um, With the Man Born Blind. When, they, when the disciples asked him, Why was he born blind? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents that he was born blind? Jesus' response was, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so here, Jesus says the death of Lazarus is for the glory of the Son of Man. So he will be glorified. And so we're reaching the height and the pinnacle of, uh, of the revelation of Jesus in this instance is what it tells us in retrospect. At the time, they didn't know. They thought he wasn't going to die. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, those two sentences appear to contradict one another pretty dramatically, don't they? He loved these people, so he stayed where he was. Didn't respond to them at all. But he has greater love than that. And sometimes that's the deal, is, is that we have to deal with the waiting because God loves us more 
than we imagine that he does. We want the short-term fix today, but there's other things God considers to be more important that have to be done in order that we might love him more. But he's showing how much more he loves us by delaying. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. And I'm sure they're looking at it at this point and thinking, I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. That didn't seem to respond to their question at all. But he's saying, Nope, it's it's light right now. We need to we need to do the things that are done in the light, not in the darkness. And after saying these things, He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Oh, we're going on account of Lazarus. Because he didn't say before. He just said, let's go to Judea. So after saying these things, he said he's fallen asleep. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. I mean, there's no real reason for us to go if he's taking a nap. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. In other words, we're up in the ante here. You guys, even your faith isn't where it, where it can be and will be. But this is going to have something. What I'm getting ready to do here, it's a big deal. Watch. But let's go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, the Jewish belief is is that after three days, the soul keeps a vigil, thinking that you might recover from this. But after three days, the soul gives up the vigil and and heads on back. So four days, you're not only merely dead, you're really most sincerely dead, to quote the Wizard of Oz. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning uh, their brother. And what what he's talking about here when he says the many of the Jews, because so he's given us the, the geographical implication of this. It's only a couple of miles from Jerusalem there. So many of the Jews, and the implication is that these Jews are coming from Jerusalem. And some of these would have probably been leaders because John typically refers to them in that way. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, you can make a million different excuses for why Mary stays in the house, but my guess is she's she's pretty upset. She's upset about her brother dying, but she's also probably pretty upset that Jesus didn't come when they requested him to come. So she's less excited about hustling out there. Martha wants to make everything nice, and we know that because we know it's her character to want to make everything nice. She comes to him, though, and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, that that's as, as straightforward as you can possibly get. It's a statement of faith and a statement of belief, but the other side of it is it's also a little bit of a rebuke, right? We wouldn't be in this situation if you had come when we asked you to. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you, and we have no earthly idea what she has in mind there. What we know is, is that she doesn't have in mind that he's going to call her brother back from the dead. And we know it because of something she says later when Jesus says, roll away the stone. She says, no, 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 Lord, by now he stinketh. So we know that she didn't believe that he was going to call her brother back from the dead. We don't know what that statement means, but we know that it didn't include, I believe, that you could you could bring him back from the dead. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And here's how we know that. 
as well. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I believe in the resurrection. So she's she's um, confirming that her belief in the resurrection and also that her brother will participate in that. She's not thinking anything immediate, though. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus's response was, I am the resurrection and the life. So resurrection is here right now. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Pretty humongous statement of faith. But her faith still isn't enough for her to believe that Jesus is going to raise her brother from the dead. She's not even thinking the possibility of that. Jesus speaks about resurrection, and then she's thinking, yep, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I affirm a central tenet of Jewish belief. I'm not a Sadducee. I get that. But, and I also believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It, it's an important statement of faith. But Jesus is, is looking around him and seeing varying degrees of faith. He sees a certain lack of faith in his disciples who are afraid to go back to Jerusalem. He sees a certain lack of faith here in Martha. He's going to hear it again in Mary in a little bit. Even those closest to him aren't thinking what he's going to do here, just like they didn't think that he would be resurrected. And we know that because they're hiding. So and they didn't believe it when they were first told it. In the uh, epistle, Paul moves from speaking against his people at some level to, to explaining how this all works. You know, yes, they stumbled, but they didn't fall permanently. Um, some will come in, but not, not all. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, it's my job to come preach the good news to Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he makes much of what he's doing among the Gentiles in order that the Jews might be provoked to jealousy and come to know Christ. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but death for but life from the dead. In other words, I'm trying to do this so that the full number of the Jews will come in in order that we can get to the next thing, which is resurrected life. If the dough offered as first fruits, that's the Jews, is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, don't look down your nose at the Jews because they're God's chosen people and his loved people. You got in because they rejected Jesus. You should be thankful for all the above. But if some of the branches were broken, oh, um, if you are rem- arrogant, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And who's the root? The root is Judaism. Then you'll say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So you could take pride in that, right? Because God loved me so much that he broke off some of the natural branches. And he says, Paul says, this is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. That's the thing. They were broken off because of unbelief. Don't you make the same mistake. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Don't make the same mistake. Don't make this thing about works. Make it always about faith in Christ. Make it always faith based in his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where 
he prays for you. Otherwise, if you move in that other direction, you'll be cut off. And even they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So it's harder to put you back or put you in than it would be to put them back. So don't take any pride in, in your salvation and your chosenness. But the Jews are never supposed to be proud of their chosenness either. So one of their uh, midrash about the uh, moment at Sinai is, is that it said the mountain was over them. And so what they see is is that, that God picked up the mountain and held it over his people, held it over this people and said, do you want to be in covenant with me or I could drop this mountain on you? And so they, they don't take pride in being chosen because it, it, they're told again and again, it wasn't because of anything inherently good in you that you were chosen. It was done for the Father's sake and the promise and the covenant that God had made with them. So with us, there's nothing to take pride in because Jesus loves me just because he's Jesus. He loves me because he loves the world. And he loves me as a part of that. And he chose me for some reason that is completely a mystery to me in order that I might share in his inheritance of eternal life. Do we believe that Jesus is capable of anything even if he delays?